You're listening to sermon audio from Providence Baptist Church. Be sure to check out pbcfrankfort.org for more information. If you have a Bible, if you turn to John chapter 11. Uh, John chapter 11, we're getting back into the stories series today, and we're going to be looking at the resurrection of Lazarus from John chapter 11. The totality of that story begins, John 11, 1, runs through verse 44, and we're not going to necessarily look at all 44 verses, but we are going to take pieces or segments out of this story. So all I really need you to turn to is just John 11, and then I'll, wa- I'll walk you through as we go through the rest of the time uh, what verses we're going to be looking at. And one of the things I intend to do today is to look at this story of physical resurrection that goes on with Lazarus and to parallel the teachings for us to what I call spiritual resurrection. You may say, what's spiritual resurrection? It's this idea that the Bible teaches, it's this truth the Bible teaches that says to us that that we pass over in Christ from death to life uh, while we maybe await a physical resurrection one day, there is a spiritual resurrection that takes place because of our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Um, I'm going to give you just a a handful of scriptures as examples. Uh, In John's gospel, in John chapter 5, 21 Jesus says this, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. And then he says in verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. There's a a resurrection theme there, passing over from death to life. Romans 6.13, Paul presents it this way, Do not present your members, meaning your body, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members, your body to God, as instruments for righteousness. So again, he uses this very uh, specific sort of resurrection terminology, being brought from death to life. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5 is one that's probably the most well-known. Paul again writing, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and our mind by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. And then one one other one from Paul. Paul uses this theme very specifically throughout all of his letters. In Colossians 2, 13 and 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him being Christ having forgiven us all our trespasses, canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, and this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Just a handful of passages throughout the New Testament, and and in particular through Paul's letters, where it talks about this idea that there's a spiritual moving from death to life. There is a spiritual resurrection that occurs. While we wait for a bodily resurrection one day, we are living, those of us who are in Christ, in the midst of a spiritual resurrection in this moment. And that phrase, spiritual resurrection, may not be used in the scriptures, but clearly this is what the scripture points to. 
that when you and I are saved, when a person comes to faith and trust in Jesus Christ, it's not just, as we've talked so many times before, that they get their ticket punched to heaven. It's not just that they're forgiven. There's a, there's a new life given that we've moved over from death to life. And so we're going to look at three things today to help us understand both physical resurrection that takes place with Lazarus, the physical resurrection that we look for for one day, and yes, how it parallels what we would call spiritual resurrection. So the first point is that resurrection requires death. Resurrection requires death. Look at John 11, 1 through 4, and then I'm going to skip down to verses 11 through 15. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. And it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And then verse 11, after saying these things, he said to them, the disciples, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. And Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. For the physical resurrection of Lazarus to occur, death had to occur. Now, that may be one of the most duh statements we've ever heard, right? You can't resurrect somebody who's living. And death had to occur in the life of Lazarus for the glorious work of the resurrection of Lazarus to occur. Jesus could have, from where he was in a distance, he could have healed Lazarus. We've seen this previously in the scriptures. In John chapter 4, as an example, Jesus heals the son of an official from a distance just by his spoken word. He tells the official, go back, go back to your son, he's fine. And the official goes back and indeed the son is fine. So Jesus could have, when he hears what happens at the very beginning of chapter 11, gone, okay, well I'm going to heal him from here and therefore the glory of God is going to be shown. But he chose instead to allow death to occur that the glory of God might be shown in the resurrection of Lazarus he chose death and this is intentional on Jesus part if you if you've still got your Bibles open there look at 11 5 and 6 after hearing this message and after saying in verse 4 this illness does not lead to death it's for the glory of God it says in verse 5 now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Jesus allowing Lazarus to die was intentional. None of us hearing the cries of a child who we love, hearing the the cries of a spouse who we love, or maybe the the cries of 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 a friend or another family member, none of us would hear the cries or would hear that they were in trouble and go, okay, well, I'm just going to hang out here for a little bit longer. The natural inclination of us to, some, to do for someone we love would be to run to where they are to see what we can do for them. But Jesus chooses something different here, intentionally. 
And he chooses instead for Lazarus to die. Now, some would say to this, well, this is Jesus abandoning those whom he loves. This is, this is Jesus taking his hands off the wheel, if you will, and, and, and just, just letting things run its course. These are moments in the scriptures where we have to understand that God works in ways that we don't understand. In Isaiah chapter 55, there's this, there's this chapter on God redeeming and restoring people, calling them to salvation, calling them out of their darkness and into their light. And in anticipation of a rebuttal against God doing this, he says in verses 8 and 9, my ways are not your ways and my thoughts are not your thoughts. And in the context of Isaiah 55, what he's talking about is, as humans, we would say, well, why would you save those people? Why would you call them out of their rebellion and call them into repentance and restoration? Why would you do that? And so in that context, God says, my ways are not your ways. You would hold a grudge. I would not. You would say they deserve what they get. I would not. And so he says, my ways are not your ways, my thoughts are not your thoughts. And so that's the context of Isaiah 55. But then we can take those words and apply them in different circumstances, like here in Lazarus. Our response would be to run, to go, to get there, to heal him, to take care of him. Jesus' response is to stay and to allow the situation to run its course. It's not abandonment. It's not Jesus letting them go. It's Jesus doing things his way because his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. Now, we have the luxury of reading the story of Lazarus and being able to know the end of it and to read this section where Jesus stays and goes, we can go, oh, that's okay. We, we know how it's going to end. But in my life and in your life, in real life situations, we don't know how it's going to end, do we? And we might be tempted. We might even be tempted by the voices of others around us. Where is your God in the midst of this? Why is he allowing this to happen? And it's stories like Lazarus coupled with phrases like we find in Isaiah 55 that help us to understand that in those moments where everybody else wants to accuse that he's abandoned us, it may not be he's abandoning us. It's more likely that he's just allowing something to run its course so that his glory may be revealed better on the other side. You and I don't know how our story ends. It may be for the glorious work of God to occur. Pain, discomfort, and some suffering has to occur as well. And so we trust him in this. And so resurrection requires death. For Lazarus to be resurrected, Jesus had to let him physically die. Now, the first of our parallels. Spiritual resurrection in my life and your life requires death as well. The Bible teaches us really three levels of understanding when we talk about spiritual death. One, we already read there, or I read earlier in Ephesians 2, 1 or 2. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. There's lots of historical, theological talk and discussion over what that means. What does it mean to be dead to the things of God? What does it mean to be dead to the, to the works of God? What does it mean to be spiritually dead? And we can debate all that till Jesus comes back. But the bottom line is the scriptures say those who are apart from God are spiritually dead. And so you here today or you here who are watching are in one of two categories. You either were spiritually dead... 
or you are spiritually dead in need of resurrection. You can only be in one of, one of those two camps. And we can talk about what that means, being spiritually dead, dead to the things of God, dead to his word, dead to his teachings, dead to his, his yearning, his pulling to us. But nonetheless, the scripture makes it clear, we are or were dead. Colossians 3.3 then gives us the second level, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So Paul in Colossians makes the second level apparent to us. Those of us who are alive in Christ have died. We talked a little bit about this last week, right? That we have died from sin as our master. We have died against the law of sin and death. And so there's a positional truth for spiritual resurrection and that we were dead in our sins and now we have died to those things because we're now made alive in Christ. And then there's a third level of understanding that we are to continually die. Romans 8, 12, and 13, Paul says, So then, brothers, we are debtors, meaning we're, we're not obligated. We're not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you do that, you will die. But by the Spirit, you must put to death the deeds of the body, and you will live. So we were dead, we have died, and we are to continue to die. We are to continue by the Spirit to put to death the things of the flesh. Now, it is important to note Paul's, the way he phrases that. We don't do it by our own power. We don't do it by our own accord. We do it by the power of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Well, it means different for everybody, I suppose. But I just think about it this way. That I need to be in tune to the Holy Spirit. Because if I'm getting ready to enter into something that is not remarkably like God, the Holy Spirit is going to say to me, mm-mm. And when he says to me, mm-mm, by his power, I can then choose to either enter or not. By his power, I can choose to defeat it. Or by my power, I can choose to ignore or quench or grieve the Holy Spirit, as the scriptures say, and enter into that which I want to do. Resurrection requires death. And the very first moment of the gospel teaching requires that you and I acknowledge that we are dead in our sins and trespasses. We are not somewhat good people. We are not okay or a little moral than everybody else before Christ we are dead in our sins and our trespasses and that requires resurrection and so whether you are a person who is yet to be resurrected spiritually whether you are a person who is here today and is living in the spiritual resurrection understand there's this crucial teaching here of understanding being dead having died and continuing to die that leads to us living in the full power of the spiritual resurrection of Jesus resurrection requires death second thing resurrection requires is belief or faith, if you want to call it that. Look at chapter 11, verses 17 through 27. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. She meets him on the outskirts of town. But Mary remained seated in the house. 
Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. So resurrection requires belief or faith. And it required for Martha a belief or a faith that her brother would be resurrected. We know from the Gospels Jesus had previously made dead people alive. In Mark chapter 5, the, the leader of the synagogue, Hyrus, Jesus brings his daughter back to life from death. Resurrects her. In Luke chapter 7, he's passing a funeral procession, and in his, in his godness, in his omnipotence, in his knowledge and knowing, it's the, the procession of a son, of a widow, which basically means she is now vulnerable. She is now socially and culturally vulnerable because she does not have a husband and now apparently does not have a son. And in Luke chapter 7, he pauses and touches and heals that individual. We know Jesus had healed many people in his time, according to the Gospels. Martha may not have witnessed any of these events, but she was most likely aware of them. And so her statement, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, is completely understandable. It is expressing a faith or a belief in Jesus. If you had been here, things would be different. If you were here, he wouldn't have died. But look what she says even after that statement. Going back to verse 20, 21. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Verse 22. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Martha here demonstrates amazing faith and belief. I know if you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. But even now, even after we've laid him in the tomb, even after we've processed the body as they would have processed, processed it back then, even if we, after we've had these, these hours and days of grieving and mourning and all these people at our house, even now I know God will do whatever it is you ask of him to do. This is a moment of incredible faith on Martha's part. And so Jesus in verse 23 actually gives her the answer that she seeks out of this faith. Your brother will rise again. Oh, what great faith by Martha and belief by Martha. Lord, even now I know you'll do. And Jesus says, yes, your brother will rise again. And then she backpedals. Don't believe me? Look at verse 24. Jesus says, your brother will rise again. And Martha says, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She moves from bold Martha, even now I know God will give you whatever you ask of him. And Jesus says, you're right, your brother will rise again. Well, let's not get too crazy, Jesus. Yeah, he'll rise again, but I know that he'll rise again in the last days. In this critical moment of faith and belief, she falls back on what her religion taught her instead of what her relationship with Jesus could have given her. See, in religious 
belief among the Jews in that day, resurrection belief varied. Some, like Martha, believed a general resurrection would come about at the end of time. It's essentially what she states. At the end of days, I know he'll be resurrected. There were others who believed among the Jews that there would be a spiritual resurrection, that the soul would resurrect one day, but there'd be no bodily resurrection, that we'd just be these disembodied spirits just floating around for all of eternity. Still others, like the Sadducees and the people that followed them, didn't have any hope of a resurrection at all. In that critical moment of faith, in that critical moment of belief, Martha falls back onto her religious upbringing instead of staying firm in the moment of the relationship with Jesus that she has. Just just let that ring through you. Even now, I know God will do whatever you ask him. Your brother will rise again. Oh, well, I know he will later. I know he will in the future. And she misses a critical piece of belief and faith here. And this is crucial to our understanding because look how Jesus responds in verses 25 and 26. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he would die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? See, Martha's saying, well, yeah, there's a resurrection event that's coming. There's something that's going to happen in the future that's going to be glorious. And Jesus moves from an event to himself. He doesn't say with her, yeah, you're right. Yeah, there's going to be a day that resurrection's coming. He says, I am the resurrection. I am the life. He is claiming to be both the source of bodily resurrection and the source of spiritual eternal life. There is no resurrection apart from Jesus. There is no eternal life apart from Jesus. Martha believed, as many of us do today, that resurrection was an event for the future. And Jesus blows that out of the water by saying, no, I am the resurrection. I have the power. I have the keys to that. I can defeat death any time that I want to for any person that I want to. I am the resurrection and I am the life. And this is crucial because this is Jesus making an intentional claim to Messiahship. This is Jesus making an intentional claim to those who believe that an anointed one was coming who would usher in God's kingdom who would bring about a great reversal of fortune or misfortune. And Jesus is basically in this I am statement, of which there are several in the Gospel of John, saying, it is me. It's not an event. It's not something to look forward to. It's me. This is crucial because we can't take Jesus for anything less than the Messiah. We can't take Jesus for anything less than the anointed one, less than the Christ. In, in Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis has this quote, and I've used this before, so it may seem, sound familiar to you. But as he's talking about who Jesus was and what our response to him is, he says this. We can't say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but not accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he is a poached egg or he would be the devil of hell himself. And you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or he was a madman or something worse. 
You can call him a fool, you can spit at him and kill him and try to kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But do not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He does not leave that open to us, and he did not intend to. Jesus poses this critical question to Martha after saying, I am the resurrection and the life. And he says to her, do you believe this? Do you believe? Every statement by Jesus, every statement in the Bible that is written by someone else that points us to Jesus calls us to say to ourselves, do we believe? Do we really believe the meek will inherit the earth? Do we really believe that we are not to take vengeance but allow God room? Do we really believe that if we heap burning coals on the head of our enemy, that's what God would ask us to do? Do we really believe the writings of Paul and Peter and John and the Old Testament writings that point us to Jesus? Do we really believe? Or are we just like Martha, sort of half-heartedly holding on to what we say we have faith in? Why do I say she's half-heartedly holding on? Because look at her response to Jesus' question in verse 27. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Some of your translations may say something like, who has yet to come or who is to come. But the phrasing is all the same. She is still backing off on on who Jesus is in front of her. And when he says to her, I'm the resurrection and I'm the life, do you believe this? She says, oh yes, I believe you're the Christ. I believe you're the anointed one. I believe the Messiah who is to come. She does not see Jesus as one who has fully entered God's creation. She sees the Jesus in front of her as one who has only kind of partially stepped in. Like a child who goes to a swimming pool and dips their foot over to see how cold the water is. Yeah, I believe you're the Christ who is coming. She doesn't believe he is the Christ who has come. And she's half-heartedly holding on to that belief and that faith. To parallel spiritual resurrection requires belief and faith as well. Last week we talked about freedom in Christ, right? How we've died to sin as our master and died to the law of sin and death and, and we live in freedom and Spiritually resurrected people have the power not to sin. We have the ability not to sin. We have the power over sin as our master. But we need Jesus to stand in front of us like he stands in front of Martha and says, Do you believe this? For us to live in the fullness of spiritual resurrection, we need to be asked, do you believe this? Why? Because so many times in all of our lives, the little pet things that we hold on to sort of half-heartedly, when somebody calls us on it, we say this statement, well, that's just the way I am. If I use that phrase, if you use that phrase as a brother and sister in Christ, you know what we're basically saying? Well, I'm still dead in that area. I'm not fully resurrected yet. And the last I checked, Jesus never partially resurrects anybody, physically or spiritually. Last I checked, he brings us to life. 
the scriptures, again, speak of this. Really, this idea of spiritual resurrection is really the biblical word sanctification, of being made more and more like Jesus every single day. And the scriptures speak to it. Paul, Romans 6, 11, you must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You must consider yourself resurrected. 1 Corinthians 6, 11, Paul goes through the list in the preceding verses of all the people who went on and inherited the kingdom of heaven, the sexually immoral, the, the adulterers, the drunkards, the, the thieves, the gossipers, the revilers, the coveting, the greedy. And he finishes that list off in verse 11 by saying this, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. Peter to his readers, chapter 2, verse 11 of 1 Peter. Beloved, I urge as you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh that wage war against your soul. 1 John 3, 9, John unloads both barrels on us. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. Do we believe this? Because any area of my life or any area of your life that we have half-hearted faith like Martha, any area of my life or your life that we go, well, that's just who I am, means that we're not living in full spiritual resurrection. Because we don't believe the scriptures that say you have died to sin. We have died to sin as our master and the power that it affords over us. Resurrection requires death. Resurrection requires belief and faith. And then lastly, resurrection produces reversal. Look at verse 17, and then we're going to jump over to 38 through 44. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days Moving to verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've always heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. It says that Jesus got to the tomb and Lazarus had been in there four days. It's a critical point of understanding. For the Jews believed that once a person died for three days, their soul just kind of lingered. It left the body, but it just kind of lingered close to the body, just in case something miraculous happened. But by the end of the third day, if the soul was not there, or if the person had not been resurrected or come back to life, the soul would depart into Sheol, the underworld, the place of the, of the dead, until such a time as judgment. So Jesus, I said it before, he intentionally lets him die, and he intentionally doesn't get there until all the Jews, Mary and Martha and everybody else included, would be thinking there's no possible way for resurrection. 
The soul has departed. It has gone. And Martha's protest when Jesus says roll away the stone is completely understandable. He's been in there four days. It's going to stink. In a a previous pastor at a previous church, I was the associate chaplain for uh, for the police of the county. Whenever the lead chaplain was on vacation or just out of town or whatever, if there was a death call, I got called. And I went to probably 10 to 12 in the time that I served at that church. And you never forget an image. I will have those images in my mind the rest of my days. But I want to tell you something. There was one call in particular where we went to a man's house who had been in his house several days. His family had not been able to get a hold of him. He hadn't returned any phone calls. They finally called for a well check. The police gained access into the house, and they found him dead in the living room. And as much as I will never forget an image, I promise you I will never forget that smell. There is a stench to death that stays with you. And Martha's protest here is understandable. Lord, If you have them open that tomb, we're going to be run out because he's gone. This is the same Martha that just a few verses prior goes, even now I know God will give you whatever you ask of him. She has closed the case on her brother and Jesus protests back to her in verse 40. Did I not tell you if you believed you would see the glory of God? That is a gentle rebuke from the Savior. And then he resurrects him. And I said in the beginning of this point, the resurrection produces reversal. And here's what I mean by this. He says to the Father, he prays, verse 41, 42, I know you've heard me, but I'm saying this aloud, basically, so that the people around me know that you've sent me and you hear me. And in verse 43, he says, Lazarus, come out. And he comes out bound and he says, unbind him and let him go. The reversal, the word reversal means the act of changing or making something change to its opposite. And there's two things I notice here as we begin to close. One is that when Lazarus comes out, there's no discussion, there's no recording, there's no stating that anybody says anything about any kind of smell. It's not just that he comes out. There's no stench. They they didn't embalm in those days like we embalm in these days, nor even like the Egyptians embalmed in those days. They they primarily just put spices on a body. And and for a person like Lazarus, who was not probably very wealthy and not, not high in a political stance or an official or anything, the Chances are very real that spices for him may have been minimal to cover the smell. If there had been any decomposing flesh left on his body at all, the smell would have lingered. But Jesus didn't just start the man's brain and start the man's heart and expand the man's lungs. He completely reversed the process. No smell whatsoever. Surely if there had been one, someone would have said, see, Martha was right. 
But there's no decomposition on Lazarus at this point at all. Secondly, we have this issue of the unbinding. Jesus has raised Lazarus, and Lazarus is fully alive, but he is still bound up by the grave cloths. I got tickled several times this week when I thought about this because I thought, how did Lazarus get up and get out? In the tombs in those days, they were basically kind of carved in slabs. And, and so he, he either, you know, kind of wiggled himself off of it and got to his feet and kind of came out like this. Or, like, I don't, I don't know how he came out. But, but understand, in those cloths, he was fully alive. In those cloths, he was fully reversed. Death had been reversed. He'd been brought forth to life. But his life was hindered because of the grave cloths. And Jesus says, take the cloths off of him and let him go. Spiritual resurrection produces reversal in our lives. Do you know there's a stench of sin? David writes a psalm in Psalm 38, and it's a psalm of seeking forgiveness and seeking, seeking that the Lord would would render him good and not evil. And as he's describing the way sin has affected him, he says this in verses 3 through 5 in Psalm 38. There's no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation, God's anger over his sin. There's no health in my bones because of my sin. My sins have gone over my head. They're a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. There is a stench to sin. Now, some people believe he was speaking metaphorically here. There are others who believe that perhaps he actually had a bodily condition because of the sin he'd committed. But nonetheless, he writes with intent in Psalm 38, sin stinks. Sin causes a stench. But Paul picks up on the reversal in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 14 Thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of knowledge to him, of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. One of fragrance from death to death, the other of fragrance from life to life. Let me explain what Paul's talking about here. In those times when someone uh, would be victorious over a people, the king, the generals, whoever the head honchos were, would often parade and have a processional through their midst. And both victors and those who were conquered alike would be on both sides. And it was a very popular thing for them to have these giant urns of incense that would be burning as they would walk and waving out this fragrance. And if you were on the king's side or the general's side, that was a fragrance to life. But if you had been conquered, that fragrance reminded you that you were essentially dead. But Paul says in Christ, we are the aroma of Christ. There is no stench of sin any longer on those who have been spiritually resurrected by Jesus. You've maybe not ever heard a pastor say this, but folks, I hope we stink to high heaven. I hope the aroma of Christ is so strong on you and me. That just merely by walking by people, people would either say, oh, that must be a fellow believer or that person has something I don't have. 
There's a reversal of the stench of sin and there's a releasing of the grave cloths. Just as, just as Lazarus was fully alive but bound up, when you and I are spiritually resurrected but, but still holding on to sin, our resurrection is limited. And sometimes we need help taking off the grave cloths. Galatians 6, chapter, uh, chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, Paul talks about if you see somebody that's in a trespass or a sin, gently, gently help them out. Carry their burdens. Bear one another's burdens. Because sometimes we're out here spiritually resurrected and we still got some cloths wrapped around us. And either we can't see them or we don't know how to get them off. And we need brothers and sisters in Christ to help us with that. Because spiritual resurrection produces a reversal. It strips away all the things that limit us. It strips away all the things that hinder us. And it moves us to live fully in the resurrection of Jesus. Death, belief, and reversal. It's what was needed to raise Lazarus physically. It's what's needed for you and I to be raised spiritually. And today, again, you are in one of two camps. You are either in need of resurrection because you are dead in your sins. Or we need to live as resurrected people. With the aroma of Christ. With the sinful grave cloths of death being stripped away from us. That we might fully live in the spiritual resurrection and the sanctification that he gives us. Death, belief, and reversal. Lazarus, come out. Come out. Thanks for listening. If you have any thoughts, questions, or prayer concerns, please email us at pvcfrankfurt at gmail.com.